Welcome to the Legit Lady Podcast, where we feature women who are nailing it in life. Hey, Legit Lady listeners, this is your host, Julie Fetterman, and welcome to the podcast where we feature impressive women to inspire the world. Now, I have to say, I'm so happy that the sun is shining, the birds are chirping, it is finally, finally spring or summer or whatever weather this is, especially here on the East Coast, especially if you've been dealing with all of the gray dismal coldness over the past while, I am thrilled. I don't know about you, but my mood seems to be totally linked to the weather. So this is absolutely fabulous. And speaking of fabulous, all of you have been absolutely delightful. You have been absolutely rocking my socks off with all of the great and thoughtful notes that you've all been sending over. And if you would like to send us a note or any feedback that you might have, or maybe you have a legit lady in your life that you think we should feature on the podcast, feel free to write to us at legitladypodcast at gmail.com. And what's been really wonderful is if you uh, have a couple dollars to spare and you really like what we're doing on the podcast and you're looking for a way to keep supporting what we do, feel free to take us out for a virtual drink or online coffee. It's this cute little tip jar that helps us continue to do what we do on the podcast. And the way to be able to access that is coffee.com. So it's actually ko-fi.com slash legitladypodcast. Again, ko-fi.com slash legitladypodcast. So a really great way to support us because podcasting, unfortunately, does cost some of our own hard-earned money. Uh, We pay out of pocket to host and to do some of the things that we do. So really appreciate those of you who've already taken time and your hard-earned dollars to put towards what we're doing here every single day on the podcast. So thank you so, 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 so much for that. And if perhaps you don't have a couple dollars to spare, that's okay. A really great way to support the podcast, which is 100% free, is to actually write us a review. So if you haven't already subscribed to us, please subscribe to us on every platform that you're a part of. So Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, Podcast Republic, all of them. (laughs) And what's even better is if you can take a minute or two to write us a review, especially on those platforms like iTunes and Stitcher. It's really easy, super quick. It actually helps bump us up in the rankings to help other people find this podcast. And because we love all of you who are taking the time to write reviews for us, I'm going to read a review from iTunes. And this review says, I really enjoy the Legit Lady podcast and look forward to hearing more episodes. I highly recommend giving it a listen! Exclamation point. Thank you. Thank you so much for this amazing review. And if that doesn't inspire you, I don't know what does (laughs) to uh, write your own review. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Please do keep them coming. Um, They put a smile on our face every time we see a new one pop up. And this week's guest, I'm really excited to share with you. I've heard about some of the work that our guest has been doing. And quite frankly, I was blown away by the importance of the impact that she seeks to make in the lives of others. She's actually a criminal defense lawyer 
and a very outspoken public advocate for cannabis decriminalization. She's the founder and campaign director of the Campaign for Cannabis Amnesty and actually sits on the board of directors of the Open Democracy Project. She also happens to be a partner at Ruby Schiller and Anna Najor. Please give it up and welcome to the podcast, Anna Maria Ananajor. Welcome, Anna Maria. Thank you. It's so nice to have you. Thank you so much for having me. We're recording bright and early in the morning. I'm typically not very coherent first thing in the morning, so <laughs> we'll see how things go. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> she says as she looks at me as I'm deliriously staring at the ceiling. <laughs> uh, happy to have you here. We're going to get to know you today through 10 main questions and plenty of follow-up questions in between since you are a very interesting woman with lots of really great accomplishments, especially in what you do. And speaking of law, you are a criminal defense lawyer, partner of a law firm, just a few very, very casual things to mention. But how did you get into the practice of law in the first place? Because you you mentioned you, you studied a couple of very interesting other things, international relations, culture, Christianity studies. Wow. Yeah. So um, I'd always been interested in the broad concept of justice and what that looks like. And um, I was interested in international justice. So when I was studying international relations, I did take courses in international law. And I, I found international law and the concept of international justice to be unsatisfactory, partly because there's no enforcement mechanism for international law. If countries want to break the law, we have no superpower to control them. It's really? all, yeah, it's all basically at will compliance with international norms. So I found that to be unsatisfactory. And then I also found that um, really looking not at the macro system, like the, the macro system of the way that the world works in terms of its politics and mm -hmm. economics, but looking at individual experiences was far more satisfactory and in how individuals derived um, a sense of fulfillment and purpose and justice, like part of the things that I um, that I studied through international relations is economics and how people... Um, employ uh you know exercise autonomy by employing their own will to, to tra travel across the world mm -hmm. to find a better life for their family right. uh, so the idea of of people exercising autonomy in ways that make themselves fulfilled um, and that contributes to society ultimately was also very fascinating for me and, and then so you did you want to help facilitate that in a in a better way or just be able to advocate on behalf of these people who are at first, I just wanted to understand. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to understand what motivates people, um, uh, how the world works. I think when you're young and you're, you know, wide-eyed and optimistic, you're, you you want to know how the world works because if you don't have a strong understanding of the operation of the, whether it's economic or political or social systems, then you really can't affect change. So mm -hmm. at that point in my undergrad, I was just soaking things up. I would just wanted to learn how the world worked. I wanted to understand, and. I had um, grown up uh, and and spent my entire education in the Catholic school system. Mm -hmm. And so I was very um, 
uh, I guess I had, I had my orientation towards ideas of justice stemmed from um, Catholic ideas of social justice and mm-hmm. liberation theology and concepts like the preferential option for the poor, which um, were developed in Latin America um, through. Yeah, what is that? So it's a it's this um, it's basically a theological orientation that requires uh Believers or people who are people of faith to um, look towards the the least in their society, so the people who have the least in their society, and advocate for them the most. Mm. And in uh, Latin America, in the fifties uh, and sixties and seventies and eighties, there's a lot of political upheaval and p- political turmoil, and w- as a result of that, um, a lot of people's lives uh, had a lot of people had their lives taken. And there were a lot of um, there were a lot of casualties of civil unrest and strife, and because in Latin America the church was so embedded with the political system, uh, a lot of people who were advocating um, or who a lot of people who were involved in the church didn't stand up and fight for the rights of the the poor and impoverished because mm. they were embedded with the political system and the political powers, and so. Gradually, there developed uh, a movement, um, uh, and one of the most famous actors in this movement was a, a priest named Gustavo Gutierrez, who said that if we are to be the church uh, of the people, then we have to challenge the um, the political systems that oppress the people. And so ah. this idea um, of challenging political systems was very abhorrent to the powers that be at the time, um, who felt that the church should be sustaining or encouraging adherence to their political ideology um, and it was very revolutionary at the time mm. and so the ch- the church was called upon to be a revolutionary vehicle of liberation for these people not just liberation spiritually but actually fighting for justice on the ground um, in communities mm. and fighting against political and economic oppression and it was very it was a very heavily critiqued movement um, at the time by the establishment and the established church because the church wanted uh, the, essentially said we're you know we're not concerned with the temporal aspects of people's lives and um, the the lived reality that they are are dealing with we're here to save their souls mm-hmm. so we shouldn't be making political statements we shouldn't be calling on politicians to take care of their poor and the, the poor and impoverished people and we shouldn't say that it's in, inappropriate for them to to create collateral damage um, through these people's lives um, and use them as pawns in their political games for power. And uh, liberation theology completely shattered that. It said, no, actually, we have a responsibility to the poor and impoverished, and that is at the heart of our faith. When Christ came to um, speak about uh, what it is to be a person of faith in this world, he talked about things like, you know, the golden rule and you should behave to people the way that you would want to be treated and um you should like blessed are those who are the meek in society and Mm -hmm. those who are humble and they will inherit the earth it's not the powerful that will do so so that challenged the conceptions um and the strong relationship that existed with the church and the the political establishment at the time and ultimately many of the actors including Gustavo Gutierrez was assassinated were assassinated mm-hmm. for their political um, beliefs and the way that they sought to assist the impoverished in their society by linking their faith to the fight for liberation and freedom on earth wow and so that whole um orientation 
uh, was ultimately legitimized by the Catholic Church years later mm -hmm. um, by Pope John Paul II and um, has become a really strong source of, uh, uh, I would say, empowerment for those who are people of faith, if they're Catholic and would, are seeking to try to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the kind of family that I grew up in. Uh, so, Do you still align yourself closely to those beliefs? Because um, I know sometimes people who grow up in going to, say, schools that are faith-based schools, yeah. they sometimes feel like that system is inherently a, a bit of a, a struggle within themselves politically or or otherwise. Um, yeah. And although that might be where the intention is or the original intention of, say, a faith-based school mm -hmm, or institution, mm -hmm. sometimes that's not how it plays out. Yeah. And I completely agree with that. I think that there are so many examples of ways in which faith-based education can go horrifically wrong. <laughs> um, in my case, I, I can't say that that's, that was the case. I had a wonderful experience. You great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I had incredible teachers who really took their responsibility um, to young people seriously uh, as their, their pedagogical responsibility as well as their responsibility as role models. So I had, right. I had a fantastic experience. Um, but coming out of that, uh, when I stepped out into the world and and started encountering uh, people who had different worldviews and different perceptions and different histories that I had, I thought that I felt that that was incredibly eye-opening and ultimately it caused me to drift away from the formal church and the mm. the formal like, Catholic church. And there's still some aspects of Catholic teaching that I um, are that are core aspects of my being and that orient me in terms of my sort of ethical outlook. Like what? Um, like a, one or uh, two examples? Yeah. So, so the, the, uh, the idea of, of trying to do, to trying to be of service always. So this ah. notion of, of the way to, to, um, <clears throat> the way to experience ultimate fulfillment and enlightenment in life is through service of others. Ah. That I felt has always been, um, uh, I find, I found just so much richness and fulfillment in that, pr in that principle, in that precept. Um, especially I think, in the, the line of work that I do now, where it's very difficult, you often serve others and you don't get anything in, re in, in return. I can imagine. Um, and just the, the, the notion like living with the idea that service in and of itself is an end. Mm -hmm. And it leads you by reflecting on the way in which it unites and it creates a unity with you and all other living beings that that can be in itself a fulfillment. I found just profoundly um, comforting in a, in the context of, of work that can otherwise be unfulfilling materially. Yeah, I can imagine, especially with the stories that I'm sure you hear, it, it's important to have something like that that can help ground you and center you at the end of the day. Because I'm sure yeah. it, it can happen with uh, you know peers that you you might know. Is just you can get affected by all of this over time. 100%. It can wear on yeah. you. Yeah. So that's helpful. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, no problem. I think it's a brilliant transition to our first official question. <laughs> Which is, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Little Anna Maria hmm. in Catholic school. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Um, what advice would I give to my teenage self? I have to think on that. That's okay. These aren't intended to be easy questions. Ah, I know. Okay. Well, one of the, one of the, great challenges that I had as a teenager was not knowing what I wanted to do and how I want, I, I've had this 
this urgent sense that I wanted to help people, uh, but I didn't know how I wanted to do it. And at some point it became incredibly burdensome. And I felt that I had the weight of the world on my shoulders, even as a, as a really young person. And so looking back, I think I would say um, to myself that you don't have the weight of the world on your shoulders. You are called to do something very specific with your life. Take your time to figure out what that is. And that's the way in which you will contribute to society. So mm. just take your time. That's awesome. That's really great <laughs> advice, actually. Uh, I I know, I mean, I empathize because I was there. When you're at that age, you can feel very pressured that you have to plan out and decide the rest of your life at that age. Exactly. Whereas it really is a journey. Some people might take their time and know a path or know an end goal. But even if you don't have that end goal in mind, at least being able to explore the question mm -hmm. can be really, really helpful. Absolutely. And that there is no script to life. Yeah. And my dad recently reminded me of this. I love he, that. Yeah. He's, he keep, he, I spoke to him a couple of days ago. He's like, you know, there's no script to, to life. You don't know how things are going to uh, end up or you can have a plan and it won't work out. And that could be the best thing that's happened to you. So every everything that happens to you is a learning opportunity. And if yeah. you approach it that way, then your life is going to be so much richer, yeah. even in the absence of a script that you thought was, you know, the blockbuster hit. Yeah, yeah. Oh, classic dad advice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's amazing. And can you tell us about the moment? And I don't know if there was a specific moment because you told us sort of about the journey of what was getting you in the direction of studying law. But can you mm -hmm. tell us about that pivotal moment if there was one like where you said, yes, I'm going to be a lawyer. This is going to be the thing that I do and pursue. Because, I mean, that's not an easy thing either. <laughs> no, and actually, that's a really good question because my answer is there wasn't. Oh, okay. Yeah, there wasn't. And a lot of people think that in order to be really good at your job and in order to find something that gives you a sense of incredible fulfillment and purpose, you have to have somehow had an intuition that that was the way it was going to be all along. And I didn't. Um, the practice of law has been a gift to me that I hadn't uh, anticipated. Mm -hmm. Um so I uh, contemplated going into law school even when I was a an undergrad. So I wrote the whole LSAT thing. And then I said, you know, I can't imagine. I was so burnt out by the end of undergrad. I said, I can't imagine oh, doing girl, another, <laughs> another three years. And, and at that time, I was even contemplating. I was still... Um, I had been contemplating going to McGill, which is a because it's a bi-juridical program. It's both civil law from Quebec and common law from the rest of Canada. It's a longer program. So it's oh, three and a half years. Cool. So uh, at that time, I was like, I cannot do I cannot do another three and a half years of of studies. Yeah, so UFT said, is a bit of a meat grinder like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to I'm just going to. But I, I did want to continue learning. Right. Um, so I did a master's. I went to Oxford and I did a one-year master's in refugee studies, wow. which combined my interest in um, social justice and human migration. And it was interdisciplinary and I absolutely loved it. And it was it was a rigorous master's, but it wasn't rigorous in the U of T sense of the word. Mm -hmm. Like it was, if you go to Oxford, it's it has... Um, uh, centuries of learning just oozing out of every 
nook and cranny of that institution. And so you would go to pubs with your teachers and have deep, yep. intense conversations. And I would meet with my thesis advisor, you know, late at night and then early in the morning, go to a seminar. And it was just, it was a different kind of immersive learning that, and, and it was incredibly rich, yeah. um, but it wasn't sort of the, the go to, go to Robart's library and churn out paper after paper or yeah. exam after exam for the purpose of, of doing that. Yeah. It was checking very, a box. Yeah. It was very d different experience. So, it was in a way a break. It's and also beautiful there. Oh yeah, oh, it's, it's gorgeous. gorgeous. I got to walk around. A friend of mine went to Oxford and I just got to walk around the campus mm -hmm. and understand a little bit about yeah. the, the day in the life, but I feel like you can't fully understand it until you're in it, but it sounds delightful. It was. We it need was to take a page out of that here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was fantastic and I met just incredible people that I still wow. keep in touch with and it just draws such fantastic and amazing um, young people from all across the world and the college that I um, were I I was admitted so Oxford works on a college system much like U of T right. um, but it's it's much more there's there's a lot of there's a lot more um, attached to your college affiliation when you're at Oxford than I think at U of T mm -hmm. um, especially because there there is a mandatory residential component mm -hmm. for most Oxford students um, that goes with your college Makes and sense. each college has most of the colleges, I mean, some of the colleges have been around since the 12th century so or the 13th century. So they're incredibly old. There's so much history and tradition mm -hmm. there. So I was part of a newer college mm -hmm. and it was a college. Uh, it was an only it was a, a strictly graduate college. And uh, it was the most international college at Oxford. So we had scholars oh. from all over the world studying uh, Middle East studies, Near East studies. East Asian studies, African studies, international development, economics, um, wow. yeah, uh, political philosophy, international development. Oh, I said international development already, but it was a lot of regional studies. That'd and be then a, a really fun dinner table to be around. It was fantastic. And we had, we ate dinner and we, you know, there was a college bar and we went to the bar afterwards and it was, mm. I feel like alcohol is going to be a theme. <laughs> Yeah, 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 that's okay. We're good. She already saw the bar. <laughs> I approve this message. It's good. <laughs> but um, just that culture of of uh, sitting and um, having a long, drawn out conversation with your colleagues that didn't necessarily lead to anything, but it was there was nothing at the end. Like it wasn't for participation marks or a seminar grade, but you know, it was because you desired to do it and you right. wanted to hear their perspective because there are people from all over the world. So it was a really fantastic experience. All right. And then after so then Oxford. After that, so I met a couple of people who were actually Canadian lawyers there who were doing graduate work in, in, in legal studies. Okay. And actually one of them is a professor at uh, Osgoode, um, Francois Tanguay-Renault. He teaches uh, criminal courses at Osgoode Law oh. School. And I actually was a guest lecturer in his class uh, a couple wow. of days ago. So full I circle. Say, I, I, I could read it. I could listen to you talk for a very long time. I hope you feel the same way as I do. I'm just like, I, I, my job is done. Just keep talking. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna listen. Um, but so that planted in, in, in my mind, the idea that, um, you know, this may be something worthwhile pursuing mm. ultimately. And then it was really when I, after my uh, graduate work, I decided to spend some time in India at the South Asian Human Rights Documentation Center. Oh, we're in India. Um, in New Delhi. Oh, so I cool. was in New Delhi. Uh, I was an intern at, it's called Sarduk, I guess the, the, the acronym, would you spell it out? Sarduk. Um, 
South Asian Human Rights Documentation Center. And mm-hmm. I was there for probably from, from January 08 to July or yeah, July uh, 08. So mm-hmm. I was there for a good seven months. Mm-hmm. And um, I was working on publications and reports around refugees. And it was really during that period of time that I realized, you know, if I if I actually want to do something to help these people, I can't just record their stories. I have to be an advocate. Mm-hmm. And the idea, the notion that somebody is a refugee, same with the notion that somebody is a criminal, it is a legal construct. Mm-hmm. And it's lay, it's an idea that is constructed, that we have constructed as a concept that we've been built, that that we have built in order to distinguish certain people from others and give them distinct treatment from others. Right. Uh, same with the notion of citizenship. These are all legal constructs. Mm. And your rights are dependent on a lot of these legal constructs. And uh, in order to be able to ensure that a person's rights are protected, you have to have, have you have to be well-versed in the instruments that have created their situation. And those are legal instruments. Mm. And so it was then that I said, okay, you know, I need to learn a little bit more about law. I need to determine, I need to, to, you know, be, I need to understand the instruments that are causing um, citizens to be treated differently than non-citizens and accused persons to be treated uh, differently than non-accused persons. And so it was through this exploration of on the ground work that I realized, you know, this actually, these are, this may be legal concepts as I, as I learned them in my, my studies, but it actually has a practical impact on people's lives. So Mm -hmm. I have to get, I, I, if I want to make a difference in this area, I have to get, I have to be trained and qualified and authorized to, do the kind of work that is required to advocate for for people. I'm seeing a theme of this like infiltration <laughs> of the system, making change from the inside. You're like, actually, I'm gonna <laughs> uh, stir stuff up in a good way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I try. I, I try to. I'm pretty. I'm a pretty stubborn person and good for a lawyer. Um, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to get you want to get stuff done. You want to get it done. So it's a good I think that's a good trait to have as a lawyer. But it was through that that I said, okay, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go into law school. Right. And I also kind of had an ac- academic bent. Like I always thought maybe I'd be a professor because hmm. I really loved studying and I really loved learning and teaching. So I said, oh maybe I'll be a professor. So I kind of went into law school thinking, okay, I'm gonna learn a lot about about the instrumentalities and these legal concepts that we've created and why we've created them and how we distinguish um, certain people from other people. And the thing that I really loved about law, even before I studied it, was it's it's the precision of language. Mm. It's very precise about the concepts that it uses and the tests that it creates that we're where people fall or where concepts fall or what kind of property you have or what that's why when you look at legal legal a lot of people when they look at legal documents they're like there's just so much jargon uh in it but i was always like but every jargon has a meaning yeah like it's there, it's for, there for a, a reason, reason right not and for your just, average person who's like my eyes are glazing over and yeah, i can't yeah yeah <laughs> but i but um i mean even if you think about the way that that things are articulated in law, right? It's just, it's, everything is there for a reason or it should be there for a reason. Sometimes, you know, we get it wrong. But um, mm. if you think about a person taking an oath, you say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Why isn't it sufficient to just say, do you swear to tell the truth? Why do we have the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Mm-hmm. Because the whole truth means you're not leaving anything out. 
Right. right. And nothing but the truth means that you're not adding anything to the truth. So it's just it's not enough for you to just say the truth. It's, you have to have that that totality of the concept. Yeah. And that's what like I loved the idea of sitting down and thinking about that. And and you do that all the time in law. And um, so that's what sort of drew me to law. But I didn't know what I was going to do with it. So right. that's the story of how I got into law. So it wasn't like a, an aha moment. It was just a confluence of these different aspects of it that jived with my aspirations and my personality that drew me to study law. That's amazing. It's very cool because some of the things you're talking about, I, I've just never thought of talking about precision of language, talking about providing the most context around something that most of us would just hear uh, on a legal TV show or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you're yeah. like, oh, that's cool. Like I just learned something new right there, Yeah, which yeah. is very cool. And you can very... It's very clear. You can see the passion coming out of it. It's like beaming. Literally, I feel like she's a sun and I'm getting a tan. Like it's 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 that amazing. So you are certainly in the right place, the place where you're supposed to be right now. And I feel that way. And that's why oh. I'm just I I feel very happy right now because I feel like I'm I'm where I was I'm supposed to be. Yeah. yeah. And talk about taking the the right amount of time to be able to to have that journey. And the other thing I really appreciated about your story is the fact that you were burnt out out of undergrad, and I, again, wholeheartedly empathized with that, but I took a very different route. I decided that, yes, I'd like to continue to learn, and my way of learning is going to be different, but you still wanted to pursue some form of organized learning, and mm -hmm. you were able to do that by exploring other options that didn't necessarily operate our, in the same way as our North American uh, university college system. Yeah. So you were able to explore that even though you finished your undergrad coming out being like, I'm, I'm done with this. So I think it's a great reminder for people who feel the same way, especially for our maybe younger listeners, if you are finishing your undergrad and feeling totally burnt out, but you still want to learn, there's a desire to continue that education, that there are so many different options and different ways that that can manifest to be able to lean into. Because very often we just say, I'm done, get me into the workforce as fast as possible. Right. And that can lead to its own burnout and yeah. its own uh, absence of satisfaction. So, um, I would my advice would be stand back a little bit and explore all the the options that are available and do a lot do your research because there's so many things that you didn't know are possible. Totally. Oh, all right. Question two: What's your proudest accomplishment? You have a, a couple at least. <laughs> oh man. Um. I have to think, what am I the most proud of? It's always when I bring on people who I know are like very, very accomplished and have done a lot of really cool and <laughs> inspiring things are like, or they pull out something that's super unexpected. I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think what. It's great. To, well, I think that's a tricky question because um, accomplishments. I think accomplishments that that word connotes um, taking full responsibility for an outcome, mm. and there are a lot of things that I that I've been a part of that have been in an, that have been incredibly successful. But saying that it's an accomplishment of mine, I think would be too generous of a term. Um, so when I think about accomplishments, I think about 
what is something, what is a decision that I made that I'm the most proud of huh. as opposed to what is an outcome that happened that I was a part of that I'm most proud of because I'm getting lawyered really hard right now. <laughs> <laughs> so like take it either direction or both directions if you feel. Okay. This is your well, I episode. I mean, like I've, I've, there've been a number of cases that I've been involved in that um, I'm so proud of the way it turned out. Like mm -hmm. the, the, when I was practicing in New York, the Rikers Island lawsuit mm -hmm. um, that changed the use of force uh, protocol um, at Rikers Island and um, some high profile cases that I've been involved in, in, in Canada when I came back as a criminal defense lawyer. But, you know, I'm, I'm proud of them, but I wouldn't necessarily say that they're accomplishments because I'm, the reason that I'm, I'm so proud of them is because that for me, they, they show that the just, that the system works, mm -hmm. that it's a, it's a demonstration of the system working and I'm just one part of that system. Right. right. So it took, it was, it, it's not just me. It's like the judge who, who, you know, exercised their function the way that they were supposed to and the witnesses who testified truthfully, even though it was, it was difficult and the police officers who disclosed all the information they were supposed to, even though some of it pointed towards an accused innocence. So like all of those things point towards, um, uh, a just acquittal and many just acquittals that I've been mm -hmm. part of that I'm proud of. And of course there's the, the role that I played and as the, the advocate for the accused person that, that I was right. proud of. But when I think about, so those are kind of, um, outcomes that I'm really proud of. Right. But in terms of accomplishments, just pure accomplishments, I would have to say that I'm proud of moments in time where I made decisions that were very difficult and I could have made um, easy, I could have taken an easier path and I didn't. Mm. So one of them was I was practicing and probably my, my most proudest is I was practicing uh, corporate commercial law in New York and uh, on Wall Street in a, in a big firm. Um, after law school, I was given the gig and I was there and, you know, I loved my colleagues. The work was, it was, it was interesting. I mean, it wasn't like existentially fulfilling, but it was mm -hmm. interesting. It was challenging. Um, the firm that I was at was fantastic. And I, there was something inside me that said, this isn't enough. I have to do something else. Mm -hmm. And I made the decision to leave, you know, I took a 75% pay cut. Wow. To come back to Toronto to practice criminal defense. Uh, and that was my proudest. I think that was a, for me, that was the, the, the thing that was so proud, that was so, um, that gave me a lot of pride because it was a decision I, that I, I sat down and actually made it. And I thought to myself, um, you know, what is the, what, what should I be, what should I be doing here? And there was an easy path on the one hand. Uh, a path of less resistance, a path of certain income. Mm -hmm. And then there was a more difficult path and there's an uncertain path on the other hand. And I chose that uncertain path. And that, and for me, that was very, um, like for me, I'm very proud of that. Yeah, yeah. you should be. And we're <laughs> lucky to have you back in Toronto. I was actually going to ask you because I, I noticed you were in New York mm -hmm. and you even did a, a lot of pro bono work while you were yes, in New York yeah. too. And that's the firm that I was at was fantastic. Mm -hmm. They let me do all that. They let me take on uh, LGBT immigration and refugee cases. Uh, and they let me um, staff a pro bono clinic at um, in Queens called Hostos pro bono clinic, uh, the Hostos Community College Clinic. And yeah. then I did the Rikers Island case with another 
other with a, with a, a lot of other lawyers at the um, at the firm, and so they were really encouraging of pro bono work. I wasn't oppressed in any way, right? right? So it was to leave that. Um, it was I needed something else. I needed something more. And I'm so glad that I listened to my inner voice that told me that I I need to I, a I need to go home and b I need to do pure crim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it's it's interesting when. It almost feels like your side hustle is what you're passionate about. You're kind of doing that to keep you going, to keep the light yes. burning. Yes. But say you're thinking and doing something that's more hypothetically corporate during mm-hmm, the day to mm-hmm. pay the bills. Mm-hmm. I think that is something that many of us empathize with, yes. myself included. Yes. I mean, I, I love my I love my work. I love my job. It's it's great. I work for a wonderful company, but I am very grateful that I get to do all sorts of other things, including this podcast that can make tremendous impact. And eventually that's how that's how in a lot of cases entrepreneurship is is born is people taking that jump. But this is a yeah. really great example of of doing it in a different way. Yeah. Like my purpose. I need to go fulfill my purpose yeah. full time as yeah. opposed to it being my side gig. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I really, I really when I hear people um, talk about how their side hustle is where their passion lies. Like I, I get that totally. Yep. Like I was living for my pro bono work. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and like pro bo- pro bono, the word itself. So it's uh, it comes from the Latin expression pro bono publico, mm. which is for the good of the public, and it uh. is work that you don't get paid for. So how do you make a living doing pro bono work? Right. You can't. So you have Catch to twenty two. <laughs> exactly. So you have to. Um, you have to uh, find out a way or de- like I sat down and I des- designed what I wanted to do. Right. And a lot of people don't do that. They just jump in. And I really advocate like if you if you want to do something, sit down and make a plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. Uh, thanks for defining that. So when I was looking at um, the Rikers Island case, I noticed that as a result of that incredible work, you were uh, awarded the Pro Bono Publico, Publico Award in 2014, which makes sense. It seems like this was a really incredible case. I mean, I just imagine trying to bring a case against a city. Like I, for yeah. me, that sounds like a really big thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and not just the city, but New York City. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, a handful of people live there and it's fine. Yeah. And, uh, and challenging and um, challenging one of, one of the most secretive institutions of within the, the city, which is their jail system. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, it was very challenging. I yeah. feel like that's a, that's a whole series of systems that has all sorts of problems all over Absolutely. the world. Um, that's its own podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, question three on that case is how do you balance work and life? Um, well, so one of the things that I love about where I'm at now is the absolute freedom to go and stay as I please. Okay. Um, so my firm, uh, even before I was a partner, when I was an associate, there wasn't sort of a FaceTime requirement. I was in the office every day. Yeah. Um, but if I had to be, if I w- preferred to work at home for a certain, um, uh, for a, a day or two, because, you know, my, my I needed a break and my yeah. mind worked better that way, um, that was completely permitted. So I feel like my work-life balance uh, comes from the fact that I 
I'm surrounded by people who are so incredibly caring and loving. Like all the partners at my firm are wonderful. Like I consider them my family. So it's, it's easy to go to work when you're working with not just family. Cause you know, family can also mean like your crazy uncle, Yeah, but it's not, (laughs) 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 but these are people who I know care about me and my well being. And, um, when I'm stressed out, they understand and there's no sort of formal pressure to present a certain way and no Um, judgment and no judgment if i say you know guys i'm i'm really struggling right now i need to take a mental health break yeah completely supportive so i feel like it's being in that kind of of healthy environment really allows me to balance uh my work and my um and my 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 i guess life but Mm -hmm. i i hate that i that that dichotomy between work and life because my work is such a strong component of my life Right. So it's not work life. It's like work, not work. Yeah. <laughs> but even then, like when I'm not, even when I'm not working, I get um, like, so my, my partner is also in law and we talk about law all the time. And I don't know, is that work as well? But I get so like incredible insights, bouncing ideas off of him. Um, and uh, is that really work? I don't know. It's like, it's mm-hmm. integrated kind of into my life a lot. I was going to say like, does that, is there a point where that gets annoying? You're like, oh, okay, let's talk about another topic yes, now. Yes, <laughs> for sure. All the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't talk about it all the time. <laughs> and then like, and then, um, there's this new, uh, television program on, I think it's a CBC program about a criminal, uh, a black female criminal defense lawyer in Nova Scotia. Oh. And he was like, we should watch it. And I'm like, I don't want to watch my life on TV. <laughs> <laughs> can we watch something else please uh, can we watch like a home reno show or something yeah oh, so funny. yeah you do you like you um i mean for for me i do want to have interests and hobbies outside of of law uh, but i love law yeah. so it's not it's not for me it's not shocking that most of what i talk about what i think about what i write about has to do with law i, right. ch- I chose it right it's not just my my job it's my calling yeah oh my gosh This is that passion sunshine coming through, which is awesome. Um, And you have done a lot of, it seems like a theme is that you don't take the easy route. You really like to go in and help make change in challenging scenarios. And one of which that I know you are are being very well known for is your work in the cannabis amnesty space. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about that. Um, And in that, I kind of want to start at the top. And if you wouldn't mind speaking at a high level about the Cannabis Act, Mm -hmm. um, and then maybe start to talk about some of the gaps that exist with that. And then we'll kind of go in a little bit. Because some of the people listening don't live in Canada, they might not understand. Some of the people listening might not be super into the idea of even cannabis and might not even understand. Mm -hmm. Uh, And hoping you can shed some light here. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think it's important even to go more than high level to go a little bit back in time. Go for it. So um, cannabis or, you know, colloquially known as marijuana or pot or weed has been illegal in Canada for decades. It was first made illegal in, um, I'm, I'm thinking 1923 or it was in the 1920s through um, straight up prohibition, straight up prohibition mm-hmm. around the same time as alcohol was being prohib- prohibited in North America. So cannabis was considered a dangerous substance and primarily because it was uh, well, because of its psychoactive effects, but also its association with uh, people of color. Mm. And so a lot of the, if you go back in time and if you look at uh, the 
writing around the dangers of, of cannabis and, you know, the, the idea of reefer madness, a lot of it stemmed from the fact that there were concerns that men of color would use these substances. And as I say substances because we're talking about cannabis, but also among them is um, OPM. Mm. So um, that men would use these substances to trick or seduce white women and therefore dilute the purity of the white race. And it would be a danger to the purity and sanctity of white women in society. And this is not sort of an underlying thread uh, of the the laws that were passed at the time. These were expressed mm-hmm. um, by advocates who were fighting for um, these substances to become uh, illegal. And it was expressly the intention, for example, the Opium Act, one of the first drug prohibition laws in Canada, it was to protect against the scourge of, uh, of, the, of the yellow man in Canada. So it was, it was very racist against Chinese right. immigrants in Canada. And this continued along um, as the uh, theme or the uh, underlying concern with respect to cannabis for uh, throughout the the, the um, history of its prohibition. Mm. And so cannabis has been a substance that's been prohibi- prohibited in, in Canada for, for 70 years, for decades, mm. and um, or even even a bit longer than that, maybe 80. So, you know, math is not my strong suit. It's not why I went into it's all law. Good. All good. I, <laughs> again, I barely it. know how old I am. It's cool. <laughs> You're great. You're doing great. <laughs> and so... Um, uh, and cannabis has a, has an interesting history um, because it's a substance that signifies so much more than what it is as a plant. Uh, it has been the symbol of a fight against oppression. It's been a symbol for um, opening your mind, for challenging authority. And it's a, it's a substance that was taken up as sort of the um, a, a very symbolic of the hippie movement in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And, and cannabis, we've had statistics that show us over time that cannabis consumption is actually quite consistent among population groups. So mm-hmm. it's not something that black people smoke more than white people or indigenous people smoke more than black people. Across the board, Canadians, of all walks, all stripes, all um, socioeconomic backgrounds consume cannabis. How surprising, as I say with sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh. But then when you look at the uh, people who have been the most criminalized for that consumption, it's overwhelmingly African Canadians and Indigenous people. And so that statistic, I think, is part is one of the most disappointing uh, statistics in the uh, in the group of statistics that demonstrate how uh, how ineffective or how how dysfunctional our criminal justice system is. When you have unequal enforcement of laws, when People across the board are doing the exact same thing, but only a certain number or a certain uh, portion of Canadians are being punished for it. It diminishes their confidence that the justice system is fair and equal for all. So you have uh, this history, this legacy of unequal enforcement, whereby if you are in, um, if you are a black person in Toronto, you're four times more likely to be uh, to be uh, arrested for cannabis consumption than if you're white, or if you're a black, if you're an indigenous person in Winnipeg, you're nine times more likely to be uh, to be arrested for cannabis consumption than if you're white. And the statistics are go on and on and on all across major centers, uh, major uh, cities in uh, across Canada. So you have this t- statistic, and it's not just a t- statistic; it is. Um, 
it is a representative of the stories of the lives of these people mm-hmm. who are unable to uh, make positive contribution to society who've been burdened by a criminal record for doing something that really, I mean, our prime, prime minister can confess to doing it. He's told us, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, that his brother was arrested for cannabis consumption. Uh, and as a result of his father's connections, he the charges went away. And Justin Trudeau also admitted to consuming cannabis while he was a sitting MP. And imagine the privilege of being so confident that you're, that you're that committing a criminal act will not get you in trouble that you admit to doing it publicly on yeah. the news. <laughs> and, and that reality, that privilege is something that's not experienced by all, many Canadians all across the country. So when the government ultimately decided that we were going to, uh, we were going to de or we were going to legalize cannabis to a certain extent I was thrilled. Mm -hmm. I thought, that's fantastic. This is such a progressive move. There is only one other country, Uruguay, in the Southern Hemisphere that uh, has done this on a national scale. There are are, uh, states that are doing it in the United States, but it's going piecemeal. And Canada is is opting to do this completely. And I thought that was so fantastic. And then they proposed the Cannabis Act, Mm -hmm. Bill C-45, and I got my hands on it and I read it. And I was like, wow. This is really historically decontextualized. There's no mention of the history of prohibition, the harms that it's caused to society, the fact that disproportionately it impacts vulnerable, marginalized communities. And it's not just the fact that it harms people through their uh, increased contact with the criminal justice system. But once you get sucked into the criminal justice system, it decreases your ability to move away from it. Mm-hmm. You are, you now are, if you receive a carceral sentence, you are going to prison and it's the university of criminal, criminal, um, criminal act. Mm-hmm. If you want to learn how to be a criminal, go to, go to prison, uh, go to jail. You will learn from the best. Mm-hmm. And so when people are exposed to that, as opposed to being exposed to other ways of transforming their lives for the better, uh, we're actually perpetuating an increasing criminality within certain segments of the population. Mm-hmm. And there was no attention paid. There was no expression of that deep knowledge um, of that or knowledge in any depth. Um of that reality in the Cannabis Act. And I felt that, that was very disappointing because what it read as was an opportunity to create an incredibly complex regulatory regime to regulate and monopolize a substance that has been a cultural and liberating force for generations of Canadians and who have those Canadians have suffered as a result of it. That history is completely absent from the Cannabis Act. Do we know why that was? No. Mm. I mean, there's been no formal explanation for it. I can mm. hypothesize or guess, but I, I'll i choose not to because sure. I don't have any basis for it. But mm. um, it, it seems really like the, they needed someone like a you advising on this. <laughs> may, I Yes. Well, it, <laughs> I wasn't asked. <laughs> but also I didn't, you know, I didn't really... F- 
formulate these opinions until after I saw the bill because sure. I assumed, you know, you're like, oh, the government must know what they're what they're doing. They must know the historical context of <laughs> the reality like, of, you know, well, that's naive me, right? I was going to say that. I feel like that's a statement that's been said over and over a couple of times in a few different countries. Yeah. <laughs> the government must know what they're doing. No, no. Okay. Um, yeah. And it just, when I read it and then I, you know, and, and then I found out how many former law enforcement officers who had, who were responsible for charging, for arresting, sometimes violently, charging uh, young people of color for the possession of cannabis, simple possession, mm -hmm. nonviolent possession, um, and how many of them now, as a result of the rules that have been created through the Cannabis Act, are empowered to become involved in cannabis companies themselves and make huge amounts of profits mm -hmm. by sitting on their board. I thought, you know, to myself, I was just sitting at my desk and thinking that is a height of hypocrisy. That is the height of hypocrisy. Some some of these officers have said publicly that cannabis is a scourge on our society and our civilization. It is so harmful to young people. And as a result of the stroke of a pen, and again, this is about the legal realities that I talked about, right? The ability of the law to create realities that don't actually exist. Mm -hmm. The stroke of a pen, the passing of midnight, October 17th, 2018, all of a sudden the scourge on our society and on our population became their gold rush. And, <sighs> and I thought that that was hypo hypocritical. And I, and I, you know, I would have, I, I, I would have been uh, happy to accept that this is the hypo hypocrite hypocritical reality that we live in because, mm -hmm. you know, that's just society. Like, I'm not naive. I recognize that there are winners and there are losers and those in power uh, tend to try to perpetuate their well-being and don't really care about those who or may not care about those who are who don't have a seat at the table. But what struck me about this piece of legislation is that they could have done a little bit more without depriving or without changing this new regime that they could have created. And that right. was, they could have created a regime to automatically pardon all the individuals that have simple cannabis possession offenses on their records. Mm -hmm. And that was something that was, you know, part of the package in almost all other um, jurisdictions where cannabis was, was legalized or decriminalized in the United States. They just added that as part of the package that they brought to the table in recognition of the fact that the war on crime, the war on drugs mm. disproportionately impacted and unfairly so people of color, Latinas and Latinos in the United States um, and people in marginalized and underserved neighborhoods and communities. So you have in the United States almost um, uh, completely where there was uh, the implementation of legalized of a law that legalized cannabis. You had part and parcel with that a law that expunged the criminal records of people who had uh, who had been uh, disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. That made complete sense to me. That that to me was a way of undoing some of the harms that have been caused by decades of prohibition. Absolutely. And just in terms of of what the ask is. We're not asking or, you know, we weren't asking for people who had committed a crime when it was a crime to not serve their sentence. We're asking that people who have served their sentence not be forced to live a life sentence, a de facto life sentence of continued stigma and continued uh, uh, retention of their record 
for something that is no longer a crime. And that made sense to us. Mm -hmm. So that's when we started the myself and um, some academics who are working in the cannabis space, as well as uh, activists and other lawyers um, and social entrepreneurs. We started an organization called the Campaign for Cannabis Amnesty to lobby the government mm -hmm. to um, either. Well, at the time when we started it, it was to uh, make amendments to Bill C-45 mm -hmm. as, it, as it was at that time to ensure that there was a provision that allowed for pardons or expungements for individuals with simple cannabis possessions on their records uh, who had nonviolent records. And um, and then it transformed over time for a more specific ask because the government actually did turn their attention to this specific issue and tabled a bill um, okay. for, for provision of pardons. Okay. And has that where is that bill today? So it was tabled on March the 1st, 2019. Okay. All right. And uh, it very recently. Mm -hmm. So it is in the process of getting pushed through parliament. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. It is. It's amazing. We're crossing our fingers because parliament, the house rises uh, in June and who knows what's going to happen in the election in September. But right. so it has to be passed before June. And that is an incredibly ambitious feet. <laughs> yeah. So we are pushing to try to get it passed as, as quickly as possible. Yeah, because no one knows what's going to happen in this upcoming election. I know. <laughs> and, and every every day I, I, you know, I get my news from Twitter. I, I open Twitter and I see the headlines and I'm like, oh, my goodness. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So it, is this uh, this potential legislation? Will this speak to most of what you guys want yes. to accomplish. Okay, yes. great. Yeah, we That's would awesome. consider it a victory. Great. Um, it doesn't go as far as we want it to, um, but we, uh, we, you know, I mean, what we're asking for is the gold standard and we understand that the government may not be able to deliver that. If we right. were in charge, which we're not, we would ask for the expungement of records, which is a complete yeah. and permanent deletion of people's records. What the yeah. government is proposing now is a pardon, which is akin to a um, forgiveness for sure. having done something wrong in the past. Um, it can be reinstated in the future. Uh, your, your criminal record can be reinstated in the future, mm. um, with a pardon, whereas an expungement would be a complete deletion and it doesn't, uh, allow for a reinstatement. Hmm. Yeah, I, I can definitely see how this plays in, especially for marginalized communities um, when they're seeking employment. As an example, I mean, some employers might not be educated enough on something like that because a lot of jobs require a background check. Exactly. And so that's where an expungement would make a lot more sense. So I understand where you're coming from with yeah. that. And it even goes when we were doing our research for the ways in which these, this impacts people's lives. And this is all available on our website, cannabisamnesty.ca. But we were thinking about ways in which this impacts people's lives. And it goes beyond sort of the traditional things that we think about when we think about how people are impacted by criminal records. It's not just their jobs. When we started doing research, we found out that, you know, it comes up in unexpected places. You're, you want to coach your kid's soccer team? Well, you got to pass a background check or you want to apply for a mortgage. Sometimes some credit companies allow, uh, ask you to apply for a background check. Mm. There are some, uh, uh, municipalities where landlords can, uh, can engage in a sort of a safe community, um, in quote, quote unquote, safe community strategy with the local police force, which they, uh, that allows them to employ background checks when renting out their buildings or their homes. And so it can impact your ability to access housing. Um, so it's really a, an, a lot of places that this can impact you, not just your employment. It even mm -hmm. comes up 
uh, it can come up if there's a um, child protection case or a custody case. Sometimes it's raised uh, that you have a can of previous cannabis conviction. Uh, we've seen cases where that's raised as a, a a, a signifier that you're not a fit parent for your child. Oh, wow. So there are a lot of places that it comes up and we're concerned about the broad way in which this can have an impact on people's lives and is really unwarranted because what does it, what does it communicate to somebody that in, uh, that 10 years ago you, you know, you had a, you had less than uh, three grams of cannabis on you or you had a spliff on you. It doesn't communicate anything about your character. Uh, especially since now that that offense, that act is not legal. Mm -hmm. is, is Sorry, is, is, is legal. Is it's legal, no yeah. longer illegal. Yeah, yes. yeah. yeah. exactly. No, that's really helpful. Uh, I think that sheds a lot of light and context on what's happening now. And mm -hmm. I think especially for people who aren't very closely connected to uh, people of color in their communities and in their lives, or they're just not well educated on the politics behind cannabis, because mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of very privileged communities who are, are completely unaware of yeah. all of this stuff that's happening. They just say, oh, cool, I can smoke on the street or I can, you know, have pot on me or have it at a party and not yeah. worry about any potential blowback. But they don't realize how deep this runs. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate that. Real quickly, uh, would you mind defining the word amnesty? Mm -hmm. Just because I know that's a word that a lot of people are not familiar with. Um, and then from there, it'd be great to understand how we can help support this ongoing conversation or help support this, this cause really. Absolutely. So uh, when we were coming up with a way of expressing what our organization wanted to do, we wanted to choose the broadest term to capture what we're hoping to accomplish. So there are a lot of terms that are bandied around like amnesty, pardons, expungement, and pardons and expungement both have legal definitions, which we see are, which we think are restrictive. Mm -hmm. So we opted for the term amnesty, which is kind of a broad umbrella concept that speaks to the forgiveness or the erasure of a person's past criminal records for the purpose of allowing them to get back to get their lives back on track and in the broadest way possible. So if we step back and talk about the difference between um, a broad term like amnesty and a narrow term like pardon and expungement, what a pardon is, is essentially taking a person's criminal record and putting it in a separate filing cabinet in, mm -hmm. um, in the government. Uh, so that's inaccessible to, for example, employers. Um, what expungement is, is essentially taking that same document that's in the filing cabinet and lighting it on fire. Um, so, that's <laughs> <That'd be fun>. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the difference between pardon and expungement. And, and those are, are determined those are definitions that are determined by the government. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to adopt a broader concept that's not determined by the government that really gives uh, meaning to or, or that can capture a, a broad sense that people are asking for freedom, not forgiveness. And in our mind, amnesty represents that. So that's why we're called cannabis amnesty, even though we're fighting for expungements and we encourage the government to pursue the the, the pardon uh, legislation that they have. So, and, and also it speaks to the fact that 
long term, we want to make sure that whatever version of amnesty is legislated, that people have access to it and can and they can implement and uh, and it can be implemented so that it can actually have an impact on their lives. So amnesty, the commitment to amnesty is a commitment not only to the passing of the legislation, but also to make sure that people actually receive freedom from the shackles mm-hmm. of their previous criminal records. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're looking towards doing things like once the piece of legislation is implemented, um, starting amnesty clinics mm-hmm. to help people actually walk them through the process and make sure that they know which documents they need to seek and where they can get those documents and um, uh, and hosting, having more resources online. Um, we're going to be launching um, on 420 uh, a platform where people can actually uh send a letter to their member of parliament encouraging them to make amendments to the present bill so that it could be a um, uh, an expungement bill as opposed to a pardon bill mm. um, and some of the key aspects of expungement can become incorporated into that bill. We want members of parliament to know that people care, uh, care about this mm-hmm. issue and that they um, have a specific uh, ask of their members of parliament. This isn't just a general, you know, you know, give us, give us pardons or give us, you know, whatever you can. It's, we want this to be as effective as possible. So we will continue working, um, with the government, with, uh, our, we have various partners, um, that have stepped up from industry. One of our biggest partners is Aurora. Uh, we're partnering also with Doja to, um, to have, uh, we, we've had for a while now a product line called Pardon, where you can get sweatshirts, you can get scented candles, you can get a stash bag, you can get t-shirts, <laughs> and all the proceeds go to assist our um, our campaign. Oh, that's so you, great. Yeah, so you can find that. It's called Pardon Life. And uh, you can find that online uh, and you can per- make purchases for that and also sign our petition, we have a petition on our website. Um, we also have partnered with Hexo where uh, there are a lot of partnerships in the works that we are very excited about. So we're hoping that with the support of industry, which has a very strong, uh, at least the, the actors that I've been in contact with, very strong consciousness around the history of cannabis, the kind that is uh, absent in the government. I find that it is present in the private sector and I find that very encouraging and we hope to continue to work with these organizations to ensure that the legalization of cannabis is fair for all and actually um, has the potential to lift people up from their communities that have been so oppressed as a result of uh, unequal enforcement. Wow. That is amazing. (laughs) It's very... I know it has a, a still a ways to go and it's had a challenging history, but this is exciting. It is. It is. And and Canada's on the cutting edge of this. Yeah. Like we are um we're the first, you know, Western democracy to to say that the criminalization of a substance such as cannabis are the is not the way to get people to health and safety. Right. And that has been the working hypothesis for the war on drugs for decades. Mm-hmm. And that, um, you know, that challenge to that working hypothesis opens the door for us to present alternate hypotheses and alternate models of existing and coexisting with a substance that is incredibly powerful mm-hmm. and using it, um, leveraging it, 
to improve our society. So there's so many opportunities that exist there. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, thank you for everything that you and the organization is doing right now. This is really impactful, meaningful work. Uh, we'll include the links in, in the episode description Fantastic. so people can go and support. Uh, it's it's hugely impressive. I am kind of speechless, as you probably tell. I'm like, wow, this is really cool. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to change gears right now yeah. entirely and switch back to some of our questions. And I believe we're on question four, which is, can you tell us about a difficult moment in your life? Now, I know you already talked. <laughs> the expression oh on the face right now is like, what? <laughs> no, the expression on my face is like, which one? Oh, okay. oh good, good, good. <laughs> I'm like, I uh, mentioned a couple. Which of the thousands? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The taking the hard path versus the easy path. I feel like, yeah, <laughs> recurring theme. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, like I lose. I lose in court. I get door slammed in my face a lot. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. People don't like. People you know, I guess it makes sense. Listen. Yeah. yeah. It's not um, like TV where they always win, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, like you know, sometimes, sometimes the 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 system isn't fair. Mm-hmm. I mean, for the most part, it is. It is, but you know, you have difficult cases and you have difficult matters that you have to deal with. Like clients who have serious mental health problems and trying to n- help them navigate the system that seems inherently unfair to them is challenging, um, and you know, dealing with difficult fact situations. Um, Sometimes there are clients that are difficult as well that you have to negotiate. Uh, You negotiate your way around that. But in terms of, so the question was... uh, Tell us about a difficult moment. A difficult moment in in your your life. life. Hmm. And it can be personal or professional. I think... I mean, I would say that they're so well, you know, it's it's not like the the other question that you asked where like I couldn't come up with one. Now I've come up with a thousand and I'm trying to choose the most relevant um, or one that could be the, the most that has the most meaningful, you know, resolution to it. It doesn't have to be. Could be just something that stuck with you. Hmm. I, mean, I, can- I would say like the, one of the most difficult moments of my life was um, after my first semester of law school, I found law school to be incredibly challenging. I mm. thought it was so hard. I felt so stupid. I felt like I just didn't get it. I didn't understand the language that was being used. I like I don't have any lawyers in my family. I didn't understand how legal reasoning worked, how... Um, uh, why people focus on certain things in arguments. I didn't understand the answers that were, I didn't understand when I asked questions, I didn't understand the answers that were given to me by my professors. And I really, really felt lost mm. and I fell into a deep, deep depression. And uh, I thought as I, rem- I remember when I was, cause I went to law school at McGill and I remember as I was taking the cab to the airport to go home for Christmas break, I remember thinking to myself, I may not come back. Mm. I may, I may not come back. So I remember that being a really low point and a very difficult point. I didn't, I didn't know, like I had lost my way and I didn't know where I was supposed to be. And I felt sad that I just couldn't get, I couldn't get it. I didn't get it. This thing that was supposed to be, um, 
that was supposed to help me find my way in life, like by my, my pursuit as a lawyer. Why did you feel that disconnect? Was it the teaching style? Was it? Yeah. I mean, for the, I think for the first time I was exposed to peers that, so law school is a very interesting place because in terms of its size, it's more akin to a high school, right? So, um, you've got, well, more akin to a high school than an undergrad if you go to like a, a larger undergrad school. So whereas at U of T, you, you're not artificially smushed into a cl- into classrooms with people for four years and only those people, right? right? You kind of jump around to different um, classes and you have different peers and you may have some overlaps with some people, but not necessarily. And so in that sense, you kind of choose your peer group. Mm. Um, but law school, like high school, you don't choose your peer group. Um, it's kind of, it's dependent on who's in your class, especially if you're in a smaller law school. And I thought this was, I didn't get this until I went to law school, but I saw that there was this, um, Facebook group, uh, called dear law school, high school called, they want their drama back. (laughs) And it's very like, as soon as I was in law school, I'm like, Oh, I get it. This is like high school, but with adults. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) So I found my peer group to be very challenging for the first time. Uh, ever, I met people who were completely entitled about their their uh, position in life, and I'd never been I'd never been really exposed to that. Like even in Oxford, people were I didn't really uh, I didn't really run across run into people like that. And um, which seems ironic because in my head I'm like Oxford, it's like Harry it's Potter. Elitist, it seems yeah. very fancy, yeah, right? It seems, but I but again I was in a graduate college, so sure, it was very it was different. Yeah, it was, and it was very international, so it was quite it was quite different. Mm. Um, but a lot of people were in law school to make money uh, afterwards, and they did not care about anything else. And I just found that really, I don't know, if it, it kind of shook me, hmm. shook me a little bit, and. Um, yeah, I, I really struggled both like the the academic aspect of law school was very challenging and I didn't get it and I didn't understand why I remember. I just have this one memory of my constitutional law class. We read this case. It was like 150 pages. It was called the Margarine Reference and it was supposed to stand for a, a uh, legal principle, except I, I swear to you, like a hundred of those 150 pages were descriptions of different colors of margarine. <laughs> and, and I was reading it and I remember tears streaming down my face. Oh, I'm no. like, why am I reading this? What, what, a, that would what drive is, me nuts. it would drive me? And I was like, oh. I don't even, I don't know how to navigate this. It was oh, so God. foreign to me. I didn't know how to, nav- I didn't know oh, how to, God. what to choose, how to <sighs> choose what was relevant from that. <laughs> I was so confused. It was confusion. It was insecurity. It was sadness. It was isolation. It was all those things oh, packed man. into one semester. Oh, and then I got really sick. Oh, <laughs> I, I got mono. <laughs> no. Yeah. So I missed a couple of my exams. And so while everyone was was celebrating the end of their exams, I was like, I still have to write them after the winter break. So ugh, it was, it was, that was a very difficult moment for me. And it was a moment where I could have just said, you know, muck it. I'm going to wrap it up and go do something else. I like, I like the coded swear. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Wow. Um, That's, I mean, that's challenging. That's a really, really challenging place to come back from. Yeah. How did you come back from that dark depression that you were in? Well, when I went back home uh, for Christmas, it was like a two week break, I think. Mm. 
And I remember I started just reading the material again at my own pace on my own and started to slowly get it. Mm. And that made me think, okay, I'm not stupid. So that was one of the things that I was worried about, right? That I'm just too stupid to get this. And I started reading it and I'm like, I'm getting this. And it was on my own page because law school, they inundate you with readings Mm. and you're rushing through and you're like, I read this case and I still, I have no idea what it says. Right. And I, when I went home and I started reading it and I, and I'm a very visual learner. Mm. So I started making these color coded charts and that helped. And so once I started doing that, it was much better. And then, so immediately it was like, okay, I can actually get this. It's not beyond my capabilities. And then I was surrounded by people I loved. So my mm. mom was there my dad was there. My brother was there. My sister was there. And, uh, there's no, there was nothing that could substitute for the love of, you know, the people who just care about you so much. And so I remember just being surrounded by love and that gave me then there. And, and therefore that the other thing that was um, challenging to me during that circumstance was isolation. And that was gone. Mm-hmm. So not only am I not stupid, I'm not isolated and I'm not alone. And then it was just like little things like that. Um, and I talked to my parents about it. And they said, you know, why don't you start seeing a therapist? Um, and so then I, I did. I went when I went back to McGill, I started seeing a therapist and um, a counselor. And I felt like, OK, I have a fallback system. I, I have a, a, you know, a way of um, dealing with some of the emotions and the difficult things that I have in my head and right. the sense of insecurity that I have. So there was that uh, I made a strategy for that. And then, you know, reaching out to some of the people that I had connected with in law school and saying, look, guys, I'm going through something really difficult. Um, and, you know, the response I got from them was, oh, my God, me too. That's good. <laughs> like, like, oh, my God. I also hate it here. This is terrible. I'm so stressed. So we're like, oh, my gosh, you can be stressed together. So then we made my friend, two of my friends. It was at her now really my good friends from law school. We made a night called Eat Your Feelings Night. Where we, would, <laughs> we would make brownies, scoop a, an entire bucket of ice cream on the brownies and oh. just eat our feelings while we watched Law and Order SVU. That sounds incredible. <laughs> so it was, you know, it was like little it was little things like that that started the whole list of things that I had that um, that that were on the the pro side of quitting. Uh, we're now being balanced by other by a list of things that were on the con side of quitting. It's like huh. you quit because you're alone. I'm not alone. Quit because you're stupid. I'm not stupid. Quit because nobody else gets it. I don't, other people get it. Yeah. Quit because it's weird that you're depressed. I go, you go to counseling and they're like, actually, <laughs> everyone at law school is depressed. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. wow. So it was just it was slowly that yeah. That's amazing. And I, what I really love, I mean, I love so many things about what you just shared, but especially that expression of vulnerability to other people, because you mentioned, I mean, it seems like you're surrounded by a lot of people who might appear as entitled and might appear as stoic, or they might appear as they, they get what's going on. They have their game face on. And I'm sure like some people, sure that's the case, but on the inside, I mean, many cases we're we're human exactly right and even some of those people who like i had preconceptions i was like oh my god that guy yeah like you know he's like a straight white guy in law school who went to harvard and is so entitled and then you actually get to know him and you're like wow we have a lot more in common than i thought and and that guy is like one of my best friends now right so it's you you um coming to terms with your own vulnerability 
is a fantastic way to um, let go of the assumptions that you have about other people. Because mm-hmm. when you start expressing, like when, you, when you're just real about who you are, you start re- recognizing that the things that you believe are um, set ideals about people uh, are actually just as fungible as your ideas that you have about yourself that you're a failure, right? It's true. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, because I'm just picturing, I'm picturing more or less all the depictions in the media of like law school together. This Mm -hmm. is what I'm kind of having in my mind as you're sharing this. Mm -hmm. So it's probably not 100% accurate. But uh, especially being a person of color, can you speak a little bit about whether the practice of law still lacks diversity or whether that's something that has improved a lot in recent years? Yeah. So the practice of law definitely in terms of its demographic makeup lacks diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's a lot being done uh, to counteract that now by a lot of uh, not just the law society, but also some some large firms. Awesome. But it's difficult for me to speak about that experience because I've had like I, I was hired to a law firm where there were um, four lawyers uh, Clayton Ruby, Brian Schiller, Gerald Chan, and Nader Hassan. Two of them were people of color. Mm-hmm. There were no women there, granted, but th- those four men are the strongest feminists that I've ever met in my life. Aww, and they've good. been nothing but supportive and encouraging of me. And um, and so my experience is, so, is incredibly unique um, and is not representative, I think, of the experience of, of people who uh, go to a law firm where they don't, where there are a, lar- a large, first of all, a larger number of people there. And second, they don't really consider those people as their family. Mm. Like I kind of consider my firm my family. So it's a, di- it's a very different experience. Mm, that's good to hear. Yeah. And good to hear that there are spaces like that that do exist and that are being created. Mm -hmm. And hopefully this is inspiration that perhaps if you're affiliated with a firm that isn't currently like that, that this is something that does exist and can maybe evolve to a place that exists. Yeah, and absolutely. And it also makes, it makes for better lawyers. Yeah. When you're in an environment where you feel that you're supported. Mm -hmm. And um, first of all, a law firm would only hire you if they think that you're smart, right? Yeah. So you're at a law firm and they've hired you. And then they create an environment where your intelligence and your brilliance can't shine. Like, what is the point of that? Right. So it's really a, a, a there's a business case to to making sure that um, your employees are in an environment where they feel supportive and supported and where they feel that they can shine and where they can work. They can build a context around um, their practice that uh, that creates the best results. Mm. I think that that's such a smart way of practicing law. That's great. Give them the flexibility to shine. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that transcends into any company anywhere. I mean, if you give someone the space to shine and you give them the supports they need to be successful, then you're going to get a better body of work out of it. Yeah. Um, curious, do you ever feel like you haven't been taken seriously because of either your gender or your background, either externally or at a potential firm? No. That's awesome. Yeah, I don't think so. If I I may have been, but I just don't re- didn't register it. Maybe, but that's good. N- no, I I don't think so. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I mean, you're also super smart. So, <laughs> I mean, I feel like someone just needs to listen to you for 
half a second and they're like, oh, okay, <laughs> yes, I have been the best hands possible. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, one, there was only, there was one episode where I was in the, the States um, and I, there was a lawyer on, an, on another case. So it's on the case, but it was on the other side. Mm. And I think he, he, he said something like the the colored lawyer or something like what? that. It was, uh, but, it was, but it was like everyone was like, he's a crazy person, right? Yeah. So it wasn't like he wasn't a position of it was dis, it was distasteful and it was yeah. uncomfortable, but it wasn't directed at like my competence or my uh, ability. And everyone around me was was also um, immediately taken aback by how inappropriate the comment was. Yeah, talk about the precision of language and the lack yeah, thereof yeah. it's like thanks did you just walk out of like the 1940s yeah Easter? and like, i think he hmm. was um this was a this was a case that it was it had there was a southern connection to it so i think he was from uh one of the states in the gulf of mexico i can't remember mm. mississippi or texas or something yeah. like that yeah okay well that's that's good at least everyone else was like okay that's not that's not how we do yeah okay question five who or what inspires you the most Oh my gosh, so many people. My mom inspires me a lot. My dad. So my mom is, both my parents are actually very inspirational. Mm. They um, met and married in the late 1970s in former Czechoslovakia when interracial couples were not a thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, they both fought very hard for their love and for the uh, for our family. So they're very inspirational. And they both sacrificed a lot uh, by leaving their respective countries to come to Canada to make sure that uh, their children had the best future possible. Um, and when I think about, like, the older I get, the more significant I realize what their the more significant I realize their sacrifice was because I'm getting to the age where they had made certain decisions, and I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm not capable of making that decision yeah. right now. Like picking up, um, moving. Yeah. Wow. So, um, and they're. Um, they just their their love is so profound and it's always been incredibly supportive of not only me, but my brother and my sister. And they, they, for me are the ideal, uh, of what it means to be a, per a caring, loving, compassionate person. And both my parents were incredible parents and had, uh, very successful careers, um, in, uh, you know, serving others. Like my dad's mm -hmm. a doctor and my mom's a teacher and they're both wow. incredibly passionate about their calling like they believe it's their calling so um the apple doesn't fall far from the tree it seems. <laughs> <laughs> and um and then i would have to say clayton ruby mm. who i work with um he is an extraordinary human being in every sense of the word like he is um he has taught me so much about being courageous and being a being a person who like i mean the, the things that he fought for that are now legal were he was fighting for them 40, 50 years ago when, you know, he was fighting for gay rights 40 years ago. He was fighting for abortion 30 years ago. Like he was, he was on the forefront of all of these issues when we, um, when, when, when society wasn't ready for them mm. and he wasn't controlled or dictated by society, he had his moral compass. He knew what was right and what was wrong and it hasn't changed for 50 years or his, for mm. his whole life. He's, he's in his seventies now and it hasn't changed. He's always been, it's just so crazy. He's always been on the right side of history. He's all, it's, it's, and, and society is just catching up to him. And it's so wonderful to see that. Like, I just think it's so incredible. And he's also so humble 
and thoughtful and caring and kind. And he listens so intently. And I think that's what makes him a good lawyer. And he understands people. And that's what makes him a great cross-examiner. And uh, he cares about progressive issues. And he's driven by a desire to make our world a better place. And he's just, it's so wonderful to um, to work with him and be mentored by him. I've learned so, so, so much from him. Next to my parents, like he's the teacher that has taught me the most. Well, and as you relate your work group to a family, mm-hmm. it seems like that's a, a really good way to be able to relate the two. Yeah. Sounds like an incredible role model. Yeah, he and, is. You know, seeing the work that's coming from you and the passion that's still glowing from you, it seems like it would take someone who knows people and knows how to get the best out of people in a really great way mm-hmm. to be able to do that. So mm-hmm. that's awesome. I really appreciate you sharing. Mm-hmm. I can see it. you're like beaming. It's so nice. <laughs> oh my god! I was like it's contagious. I feel I feel so smiley right now. It's amazing. <laughs> All right. Question six is: What is the most adventurous thing you have ever done? Oh, um, that's pretty easy. It was when I just decided to up and leave and move to India for a year. I lasted seven months, but I just I <laughs> 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 when I was twenty three. Why, why did you only last seven months? Well, it was kind of, uh, I, cause I had got, I had gotten admitted to law school oh, while okay. I was there. Got it. So uh, I had to come back and I had to prepare in law school. I left in January. Law school started in September. So I had to come back in July. Got to it. Prep. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit, a couple of highlights from your time there? My, my partner's from India and oh, I was recently there. And so first of it. all, um, We've been conned in our school system by thinking that the greatest civilization has anything to do with the West. (laughs) Like in India, it is so incredible. Just the history, like 2000 years ago, there were universities that were as advanced in terms of philosophical teaching and thought Mm -hmm. as things that we know we thought were breakthroughs 500 years ago. It's just so incredible, like the history. And the other thing is that I, that I loved about India was the diversity. Mm -hmm. You think that there's only one, one way of being Indian and you travel around India and not only are there a bajillion ethnic and linguistic groups, (laughs) but there are also a bajillion, um, um, religious groups. It's so like there, there are Christians that have been in India for, a thousand years. There are Jews that are Indians that have been there for centuries. There are the Parsis as well as the Hindus and the Muslims and the, the Sikhs and the Jains. And, and it's just, it's so rich. Like Mm -hmm. every aspect of it is so rich. And I was just, when I got there and I started learning about this, I felt so that I had been so robbed in my entire childhood, not knowing about this Um, because our, our, I guess the way that we learn about history or the way that I learned about history was primarily predominantly European. Yeah. And so you don't get to know a lot about what was, what, what was happening in India. And then just the beauty of you, you New Delhi was, um, it's a, it's a cosmopolitan place, but you walk and there are all these beautiful parks in it. And then in the parks, there are ruins and they're not protected. Like they're not cordoned off. You can climb them. And then you realize I'm climbing a ruin that is, a thousand years old and it's just so incredible like it's it's history is alive and it's not it's not sort of put in a museum it's alive yeah. and it's there and it's like I've, I can go on and on and on about India I like absolutely loved loved my visit there oh, um, wow. my time there I love Bollywood um, yes <laughs> I, I love how um there's like an Indian like so in a lot of other places that are 
quote unquote um, modernizing, right? There's developed countries that are modernizing. It involves the infiltration of Western culture. Mm. And I just found that India, in India, there is there is an integration of some aspects of Western culture, but you still walk down the street and see women in saris, mm-hmm. um, and it's not it's they're not wearing quote unquote traditional clothes like that's their clothes, yeah, right? that's the, what they're wearing today to work because yep. you know you can do that. Um, so I just love the fact that there is a, a method of modernizing or a method of of um, uh, yeah, I guess a, a modernizing culture that is uniquely Indian. Like mm-hmm. the music is Indian. Mm-hmm. The movies are Indian. The literature, the incredible literature, like Indian authors are so, like, they're so good. Yes. <laughs> when you think of like Rohinton Mystery or Arundhati Roy or like all the people, India, um, those who write in English of Indian background are such good authors. Yep. And, um, just the food is amazing. <laughs> it's yeah. incredible. And I love learning. So I, I practice yoga. I love learning about um, uh, yogic principles and Ayurveda. And um, I just, like, I just learned so much being there. It's so incredible. I felt, I really felt that I wish I had more time to spend just learning about India. Yeah. Because uh, I think it's, it's such a beautiful country. <laughs> it's true. I mean, little nuances that you mentioned like even language mm-hmm. understanding that there are words and say like or do that don't have an english counterpart yeah. you're like you we think being you know more or less western raised it's like we think that we we know it all we have it all of course english is the dominant language yeah. it, it does all the things but no it, it totally doesn't exactly and when i was visiting it was very funny. You mentioned the clothes. Uh, my my partner's aunt, so his masi, uh, was asking me. She's like, "Oh, so we're going shopping. What what do you wear to work? Like a a kurti or cheval yeah. chemise?" And I'm just like, "Um, no." <laughs> but you know, they're beautiful. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> the look on her face is like, "What? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean you don't wear this?" <laughs> yeah, I know. I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, well. You should definitely go back to India. I really want to. I didn't get a chance to explore the eastern part of India a lot. And mm-hmm. I really wanted to go to Kerala. And I I, um, I didn't have an opportunity to. So that will be my next trip. Yay. <laughs> absolutely. Alrighty. Moving on to question seven. What do you attribute your success to? Uh, grit. <laughs> <laughs> persistence. <laughs> yes. Yeah, stubborn persistence. Um, is this something you felt like you always had yes. growing up? Mm. Yes, I was. I was always in- incredibly stubborn, even as a child. <laughs> yeah, and I had to like, when I wanted to get something done, I had to have it done. Like I had to do it, and I had to do it to a standard of perfection. Like I, I think, uh, I do have like a perfectionist uh, bent um, that I'm can be helpful, but can also be difficult. Um, psychologically (laughs) so I'm working I'm I'm working with I'm working with it my Mm -hmm. perfectionist tendencies um but uh yeah always as a child even as a child like I was very 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 focused and driven and uh stubborn well again I would think these are these are elements that work definitely in your favor in Mm -hmm. your line of work Mm -hmm. so perfectionist tendencies and being stubborn that resilience that fire and drive mixed with your passion Mm -hmm. yeah there's no no doubt in my mind you're a force to be reckoned with which is great (laughs) 
All right. Question eight is what item or items could you never live without? Nothing. There isn't anything that I couldn't live without. Really? I think that's part of, of, um, like I, and I, I intentionally, I do that because I think I like as a mental practice, detachment from material possessions is a really, um, is really beneficial uh, to one's spiritual well-being. And so because I subscribe to that notion, I tried not to, like I'm right now in the process of trying to minim, like adopt a more minimalist lifestyle. Um, and my partner would laugh at this because I just bought like a thousand dollars worth of new clothes. But <laughs> I was gonna say, if you just look around, clothes. you can tell I, I'm not work in that cl- one. <laughs> no, yes, you are. Oh, like oh, you, absolutely not. I have so many decorations and things and ridiculousness. No, no, no. I would say that this is relatively minimalist. Anyways, oh, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna. Talking. It's a good thing this is recorded. I'm gonna just like play this back for my partner on loop. <laughs> sorry, go on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it would be very difficult for me to live without and work without my phone mm. but um like i'll get uh, i'll make it work yeah but if you if you knew tomorrow you could never have a phone ever again i'd make it work yeah i should make it work <laughs> i have to say it's the first time i've heard that as a response yeah which is great <laughs> yeah I, I can't think of anything where i would my life would fall apart if i didn't have it mm-hmm yeah it's it's an important reminder i mean we get so emotionally attached to stuff so much so that a phenomena like the marie kondo popularity becomes a massive trend that makes waves across at least western society Mm -hmm. because we're too attached to stuff and things and we accumulate too much of it and then we compare the amounts and kind of stuff that we have to other people's stuff yeah and feel good or bad about it well like my family we moved around a lot when i was younger before Mm -hmm. settling in canada before settling in canada i'd probably lived in like 12 different homes so having always like because we different countries well not different countries but we lived in slovakia and then moved to austria and then back to my dad's country nigeria then we were in the netherlands and back to slovakia then we were in alberta then we were back to slovakia then we were in and then finally settling in toronto so we lived in a, a bunch of different places in different countries different continents so we moved around a lot so as a kid i had like some stuff, but I always knew that some of it may get tossed if we move, if we have to right. move. Um, and so I didn't really like grow up with like a favorite teddy bear or a favorite blanket or something like that because it was, uh, it was always in flux. So I didn't mm-hmm. have an attachment to, to anything physical growing up. And then when we finally immigrated to Canada, um, we were sort of, we were sort of on the, like, I would say mid to low socioeconomic class. So we didn't, I couldn't accumulate stuff or attach meaning to stuff Mm. and this is one of the reasons why i loved um going to a school that had uniforms because i just didn't didn't have have to think about about clothing (laughs) at all it was fantastic i didn't have to think about you know trying to um follow the latest trends or um um you know buy things that would make me popular i just didn't care yeah. That's, that's great. <laughs> it seems like, especially if you introduce that that concept, whether it's out of a state of need or not, to someone when they're young, that's going to hopefully stay with them. Mm-hmm. Because it seems like, like you mentioned, having the favorite toy, the favorite this, and building so much story and meaning around a thing, that's how we build those connections yeah. to material yeah. goods. Yeah. 
Hopefully not to the- say that there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. Like I would, uh, I, 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 when I was um, in university, I developed this, it was kind of like, so I, I tried to, I'm, this is going to give you an insight into some of the strange habits that I have, but I try to develop disciplines that some people may think are a little bit weird. No, <laughs> so no. I, I got a system I, for everything. So yeah, it's cool. yeah, Go yeah. On. <laughs> so one of the things that I thought would um, help me uh, foster the sense of, of detachment would be to go to like, for example, Yorkdale mall and be surrounded by beautiful things and admire beautiful things, things that are well-crafted, things that are expensive and hold in abeyance your desire for ownership of those things. Oh. And so like, look at things and if, especially if it's something that you can actually afford, you're like, I think that that is a beautiful diamond ring or necklace. I can't afford that, but whatever. <laughs> like, I think it's a beautiful jacket, right? Yeah. Like it's usually a piece of clothing because sure. I love clothing or shoes. Like yeah. for me, it's shoes. Like I'm, I like that. That's a beautiful pair of shoes, but I'm going to not get it because I don't have to. And then you just walk away and you're like, oh, oh yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So you like, you appreciate the beauty of something. You can yeah. say that this is well-crafted without your immediate subsequent thought being, I have to own it. Yeah. Wow. That's, that takes a lot, man. See, cause I would do the I'm just going to try it on. And then yeah. I'm like, then I'm locked in. When I try it on. I'm like, oh, it looks so good. I yeah. need it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, oh, there have been mon- multiple fails along the way. Yeah. <laughs> just look at my closet. There are multiple fails. <laughs> I hear you. Mine too. Yeah, yeah. If, if you look at the closet that my partner has, it's like a teeny little like br- broom cabinet in comparison to mine, which yeah. is like the entire wall. So yeah. totally hear you. That's, that's hilarious. Uh, all right. Question nine, is there anything you'd like to promote? So any links, websites you want to... Yeah. So if you're interested in the Cannabis Amnesty campaign and the broader project of Cannabis Amnesty, then you can visit our website at www.cannabisamnesty.ca. And please do sign up for our newsletter because we have some really exciting news that we're going to be sending out um, in the next couple of weeks as we lead up to 420, the uh, proverbial cannabis uh, (laughs) holiday or special national day. Uh, so if you're interested in what we've got on the go and how you can help and how you can contribute, please visit cannabisamnesty.ca. Fantastic. And I was curious because I noticed something called the Open Democracy Project. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on the board of directors of the Open Democracy Project, which is a fantastic organization that started as a way to make running for municipal office much more accessible to candidates who are running for the first time. So a lot of local politics is, uh, so local politics is actually a little bit different than sort of federal or provincial politics in the Mm -hmm. sense that you don't have the party backing uh, behind you mm-hmm. and that machinery, but also the incumbent advantage in municipal politics is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult for you to be successful as a candidate if you're not an incumbent, so somebody who's running for re-election. And what the Open Democracy Project has tried to do is create resources and tools that allow people who are seeking to run for office, particularly municipal office, to um, uh, 
to have access to sorry the the resources and tools for them to have access to that that would help facilitate close that incumbent um, advantage for them. So there's a lot of open source resources online, um, as well as workshops and seminars. And actually, the campaign for cannabis amnesty was created out of one of those uh, workshops, which is mm. the Civic Accelerator campaign. So because of the success of the Open Democracy Project and assisting uh, with political municipal campaigns, uh, we decided to design a campaign about, okay, we don't want to just launch a candidate. We want to launch a cause. And so the campaign for cannabis amnesty was that first cause that was launched uh, through the Open Democracy Project. And so a lot of what we developed in our tools that got us to where we are was developed from the Open Democracy Project. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And is that... um mainly focused for Toronto or Canadian cities or is that municipal anywhere? It's, it's across Canada. Oh, so nice. we've got, we've got resources. Um, uh, it's actually, um, resources that were designed in the context of a number of municipal campaigns launched mm. all over the country. And as a result of that, the, the resources that were created within those campaigns that made them um, very effective and successful were put in a data bank with the Open Democracy Project. So mm. there are um, there's a bank of of resources, but it's primarily from Canadian elections. Okay, that's mm. really cool. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Thanks for sharing. Um, I had a couple other questions. I'm keeping my eye on the time here, <laughs> but uh, curious because you are a criminal defense lawyer. You have seen some stuff. Mm -hmm. Is there one or two particular stories that you're allowed to talk about at a high level that have stuck with you that were particularly meaningful or impactful? Um, I mean, there there are some cases that have stuck with me, but because of my my primary obligation is to ensure that the um, wishes of my clients are respected and a lot of them wish they're once they've been acquitted, they wish it to go away. Yeah. They so they don't want me to be going around town talking about, oh, this fantastic case that I won. And these are all yeah. the details and it rehashes their, their experience. Um, so it's, it's going to be, it's difficult for me to think of something that, uh, that I can talk about in a, in a level of abstraction that would, prevent me from identifying a client. Yeah, I don't, don't want to take that risk. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. That's fair. I wasn't sure even if some of the, the pro bono work that you've done, if there was a particular instance or something that. Um, um, well, so the, in terms of the pro bono work that I'd done, mm -hmm. um, I represented, uh, one of the first things that I, one of the first assignments that I got when I, when I came to my firm in New York is mm -hmm. I represented a young man from Jamaica who was gay. And he was very um, effeminate and as a result of that had been a target of a lot of hate mm. um, and physical violence as well. And he fled to the United States. Um, and when I started his case, he um, was homeless. He had no money. Um, he had finished cooking school in Jamaica, um, but didn't have any employment and he was seeking asylum. And uh, through the process of, of preparing his asylum application, preparing him for the interview, I got to know him a little bit and know his aspirations. And uh, he's just a wonderful individual. And his dream was to own and design women, uh, own a company that designed women's lingerie. Like he, <laughs> he absolutely was. And he would show me his sketches. And I'm like, wow, that is that is really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> good, interesting. Or yeah, no, good, yeah, interesting. Good, yeah, good, good, interesting. Like I, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not an 
a, a connoisseur of sure, lingerie, sure. but I'm like, this looks like Victoria's Secret stuff or yeah. whatever. Um, so, and, and he'd run into a lot of trouble in the shelter system in, in New York City because he'd been bouncing from shelter to shelter and was, um, the shelters are tough there. Mm. And he was, he faced uh, a lot of discrimination and um, again, verbal and physical attacks because he was quite effeminate mm. um, as a man um, and his mannerisms were very effeminate and uh, it was difficult for him. And through the process, I got to know him and I was very, very happy that about a month before I decided to leave or I had already decided to leave, but a month before I actually left, he was granted asylum and oh. in the United States. And, uh, it was just so fulfilling to me that it had come to a conclusion. And by the time that I had left, he was not only granted asylum, but he had a job and he got his own apartment and he, um, his job was he was preparing food at a, at a local hospital mm -hmm. in one of the boroughs in, uh, in New York. I can't remember which one, but so he was able to put to use his training as a chef and he was, you know, a contributing member of society and he was looking to forward towards his American citizenship and he was starting life again. And wow. just somebody who'd come and had absolutely nothing and to see within a year and a half that he uh, was able to, um, become a contributing member of society and and he still had dreams and he still had aspirations and yeah it was very heartening to see oh wow yeah. that's that's a really beautiful story mm -hmm. thank you for sharing mm -hmm. yeah and the reason why i asked is because you you deal with so many very human stories yeah. on a regular basis and it is very easy for especially privileged population to just go about our days and have blinders on mm -hmm. and although we know the nature of the work that as an example you are doing is doing incredible things we don't necessarily put the human stories into it yeah you know what I mean yeah. so I really appreciate you sharing that all right one last question to wrap things up here question 10 mm -hmm. what is a lesson you learned the hard way that you'd like to share with our listeners ah okay this is a this is a lesson that I is, I'm still learning to put into practice, but it's um, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And Ooh, yeah, <laughs> that is a good. One. I'm glad you baked on that one. That's good. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and that's often. I mean, that's something that I've because like as a perfectionist, I often won't do something until I think that I can do it perfectly. Mm. And I think that that has resulted in a lot of lost opportunities to do good things. And I think a lot of people do the same thing where they believe that if they can't do everything, that they shouldn't do something. Mm. And that's why a lot of people opt out of, you know, trying to, to help in cir circumstances where they believe where they may be able to help a little bit. Or, you know, they may not be able to solve the entire problem of a certain issue, but they can fundraise a couple of hundred bucks towards it. Um, and so things like that, I think, are really important lessons or something like that is a really important lesson because often we are what's communicated to us by society is that our world is so horrific and so horrible, just opt out completely. Mm. Um, and I think that that's the wrong approach. And so one way that I have um, or, or one lesson that I've learned is just don't just because you can't do it perfectly doesn't mean you can't, you shouldn't make strides towards doing it well. Um, I yeah. love that. <laughs> I really love that. And it's interesting because I actually think that's also a pretty gendered 
perspective too, like as an example, uh, a lot of women who are applying for jobs versus mm -hmm. men who are applying mm -hmm. for jobs, they won't apply for the job unless they pretty much fit almost all the per requirements. Yeah, exactly. Perfect, versus yeah. guys, they might have a portion of the requirements, but they'll still apply. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. what tends to happen is, you know, you, you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take, right? Exactly. It's, it's the same thing. And so that paralysis can keep you from doing so much good as you outlined exactly. along the way. And I've experienced that in the past where I opted out of applying for um, scholarships or jobs or internships or positions where I said, oh, look at the criteria. I can't possibly fit that. And then a month later, you see you, who got it and you're like, what the... <laughs> Man, I should have applied. <laughs> so, so you you know you discount yourself because you think because I'm not perfect, I can't be good enough. Yeah, and so that's a lesson that I've learned. That's important, and I think people should uh, should pay attention to that lesson. I'm so glad. Yeah. Well, Anna Maria, thank you so much My for pleasure. all of this for being here. We learned so much from you, and keep up the amazing work. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Find us on Facebook at Legit Lady Podcast. That's L-E-G-I-T-L-A-D-Y Podcast. And on Instagram at Legit Lady Podcast. On Twitter at Legit Lady Pod. That's Legit Lady P-O-D. And please rate and comment on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you love what you hear, share it broadly and proudly. Thanks, everyone.